0: It's time to think bigger.
1: Elias Petterson scores!
2: And think bolder. Matthew Bloody Ball! This is Rintoul in Sermon. Another chance. Great save by Markstrom. Can this shot be bad? Great save
3: by Tim Cole.
2: On the Sportsnet Radio Network.
3: Good Tuesday morning hope you're having a great morning and as Scott would say we're here to make it better Scott is on vacation for the two more weeks so my ride or die for the next two weeks is a Jamie Dodd sitting in the hosting chair remember you can always contribute to our show 650 650 and 960 960 Jamie good morning how are you today how was your long weekend
2: uh, well, it was a long weekend, but not <laughs> a particularly relaxing one because I was moving this weekend. Oh, moving day was Saturday, so that was uh, eventful Sunday and Monday, unpacking, trying desperately to get organized uh, while also looking after a three-year-old. So not not the most relaxing three-day weekend I've ever had, but I'll say this. I'm broadcasting from home still, so, so my new home is my first show in the okay. new home, and unlike my previous setup, I actually have windows to look out of now. So I'm really enjoying that, getting some natural light while I'm broadcasting for the first time in a long time.
3: So did you upgrade to like an office, a bedroom? No, no. (laughs) No, No. still
2: in the... I'm I'm at the the kitchen table right now, but I'll (laughs) take it. I'll take it. At least I'm looking out some windows.
3: It's funny. When I first started working from home, I was in um, the bedroom next to the bed... Window. But it was like, you know, you're just kind of rolling out of bed and going to your desk so it's like trying to get you know like your your brain wrapped around getting to work now I sit at my kitchen table so it's a little bit better birds fly in the door so I mean it's always an eventful thing (laughs) hopefully you don't have a door to the kitchen that you keep open and don't have any uh wildlife joining you over the course of the show or the next two weeks but hey congratulations on the move that's always very exciting I know I can imagine how hectic it can be but uh yeah good to have you on looking forward to these next two weeks
2: I'm very excited and I, I will say I um, I feel a little bad because you said you know my ride or die for the next couple of weeks <laughs> i I am taking this Friday off so <laughs> I'm abandoning you right pretty much right away as we get into it so I apologize for that in advance
3: and I currently don't think I have a co-host so we'll see what happens there so maybe, yeah there yeah, might be maybe. the
2: dreaded uh, the dreaded question marks on the old schedule there we'll see we'll see how <laughs> oh, that works out
3: good times good old summer planning summer vacation yep Okay, so I was on vacation for the last week. Um, I had a wonderful time in the BC's interior. I was in Penticton. I was in uh, Soyuz. Got to drink a lot of BC wine, which is incredible if you're wine drinkers. oh, make the trip there one time. I got to give a shout out, though, to the firefighters. And even the business owners in that region right now because, man, oh, man, Jamie, like, it was like the apocalypse some days. It was so bad, Smoke wise. So, for those out there that are trying to, like, fight these fires, kudos to you. I want to give you a shout out because it's an incredibly tough job right now. But I was thinking about all the things that happened last week because you were working last week. So, you were here. And so, let me know if I've kind of got it all right. The Canucks have Oliver ekman Larson after trying yes. for a year to get him. Okay. Calgary gives two-time cup champion Blake Coleman some money.
2: Some big money and and big years as well.
3: Exactly. Okay. Uh, Canadian women are kicking butt in Tokyo. Like kicking some ass right now.
2: Yeah, they are.
3: Okay. Got that one. Penny Alexiak is still incredible. Uh, Saw a little bit of her races. Oh, she looks so good. And Canada's women's soccer team beat the United States. Like that happened, right? I'm not, not wrong on that.
2: For the first time in over 20 years, they did it. And in a, in a massive, massive game as well. Yeah, no, you didn't dream that. Okay. I know it was a 1 a.m. Uh, Pacific time game, so maybe you thought you were hallucinating, but no, that really <laughs> happened.
3: Did you stay up for the game? Like, Did you watch it live? Did you set your alarm or did you... I will PBR- admit I
2: did not. As I said, pretty yeah. hectic weekend, so I was sound asleep, sound asleep at 1 a.m., but I did, I, I did see it after the fact.
3: You know what, so... We had just gotten home from Soyuz, so as you can imagine, a long week. I did my body not a lot of favors over that last week, so I was pretty tired when I got home. And I was like, well, you know, I could set the alarm. And my boyfriend said, okay, I'm going to try and stay up. I'll come in around 1230, see where you're at. If you're kind of awake or you 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 wake up when I walk in, you can come watch it. No, I was dead asleep. (laughs)
0: Dead (laughs) asleep.
3: So I did PVR of it and watched it the next morning. I have to say this, like – Change the color was their model going in, and man oh man did they change it in dramatic fashion. Like, just to recap the game, for those who haven't, um, didn't get a chance to watch it or didn't see the highlights, Canada was really good, Jamie, in that first half. And I mean, it wasn't eventful first half, but they just did a good job of not letting a ton of things happen and kind of control a bit of the play against the U.S. And then the U.S. came out pretty aggressive shall we say in the second half a bunch of good saves by Steph Labbe she wasn't like I wouldn't call them chances where it's like oh my god saves there was one off Julie Ertz it was a corner kick and it was a header free header for her in the box and Labbe made a really great save but to Canada's credit defensively they still held held the U.S. kind of in check
2: and that's been Canada's calling card so far in this tournament, mm. right? It has been their defensive effort. And, I mean, it, they've played some good opponents. You know, they, they, they were yeah. able to get past Brazil in the quarterfinals. But it's one thing to do it against other teams, and it's another thing to do it against the United States. And, you know, I, I'm excited to talk to Sandra Priscina a little bit later in the show, kind of get her thoughts on this game in general, but also the exact quality of this American team. But, you know, whether it's a, a, an exceptional team by U.S. standards or not – they're still the top dog in women's soccer, right? So to be able to put in a good defensive effort against them is very, very impressive for Canada.
3: I mean, going into these Olympics, I wasn't sure what to expect from women's soccer in general, but the U.S. is still the gold standard, right? Um, They didn't win gold in Rio, I understand that. They didn't even get a medal. They were knocked out by Sweden, and we'll talk about them in a little bit in the quarterfinals, but it's still the United States, and it's still just they are the ones to beat and it took to the 70th minute and Deanne Rose and her speed like that's the reason she got that penalty so um again just to recap it was a long ball and Deanne Rose chased it down the American defender Davidson had no idea she was there and took a penalty and VAR like we talk a lot about VAR Jamie but VAR was on the side of Canada in this one Greg do we have that call? Fleming against France (laughs) Fleming scores. Canada leads in the semifinal. And I'm not, that's a short call. <laughs> that's a short one. Uh, Jamie, I'm not sure if there's a more iconic photo. I don't know if you've seen this still on Twitter of Jessie Fleming on her knees, sliding yeah. to the substitutes on the side. The joy and the excitement on her face. I got to ask you this, though. Christine Sinclair had the ball. And she handed it over to Jesse Fleming. And we know that Christine Sinclair, she was stopped or missed the penalty kick against Brazil in the quarterfinals. Were you surprised she didn't take it?
2: A little bit. Just because... Okay, here. here's. In one sense, I'm surprised. In another sense, I'm not. I am a little mm-hmm. bit surprised because we all know what this opportunity for revenge... And I mean, that's the word that Christine Sinclair used after the match, right? That's how she looked at it. We know how much this opportunity for revenge after what happened in 2012 in London meant to Christine Sinclair, right? And we also mm-hmm. know, I mean, she's the all-time leading international goal scorer in soccer. She is iconic for Canada, the leader, all of that. So, yes, there is a certain expectation that she's going to step up and take it given you know how incredibly prolific she's been in her career. But also, the other thing you know about Christine Sinclair is that she's a leader, right? And, mm-hmm. and she's such a high-character person. So... I'm also not surprised by the fact that she had the presence in the moment in an incredibly high-pressure moment to understand, you know what? Based on our form right now in this moment, the person who gives us the best chance to convert this isn't me. It's Fleming. And Mm -hmm. I will say this also, Karen, what a penalty by Jesse Fleming. Like, perfect. The American Keeper guesses correctly, but it's just taken with too much power and too much accuracy into the side netting no chance of stopping them. i got to say i mean I, I hate to do this to you but the the england fa might consider hiring jesse oh, fleming to do some it. <laughs> some pk tutoring for their hey, players t- cuz that was a picture perfect textbook penalty by fleming unstoppable
3: Jamie you're an English fan too this is shots at yourself I know but
2: I think you're you're like a slightly (laughs) bigger fan than me so for some reason that makes me want to chirp a little bit
3: fair enough and after that goal the U.S. kept pressing and pressing and pressing they just couldn't get it in the final whistle went Canada is moving on to play Sweden in the gold medal game so many demons well, I don't want to say demons, but so many first in this ones, and I will say demons, of 2012, that London semifinal, their disappointment in that. They were exercised uh, with this win. Now, there were only two Canadians on this team, Desiree Scott and Christine Sinclair, that were actually at the London Olympics. A lot of the U.S. team was actually on that team um, for the U.S., but they didn't want to use it as a kind of... They weren't trying to use it as an excuse. Well, not an excuse, but just say they didn't want to focus on London. They wanted to focus on the here and now. But Desiree Scott did say prior to the match, you know, there is something in us that just wants to get some revenge for what happened in those games. And they did. And, uh, Jamie, when watching this Canadian team play in, the, in this tournament so far and you go back to their first match and all the way up through the quarterfinals and the semifinals wins, like it's not high event soccer. No, it's not. It's not Italy in the World Cup. You know, there's not a lot of high pressing from Canada, but they're playing the way to win games. It's defense first and in a tournament where there is not a lot of games to play, it seems to be the, the right strategy, at least for them.
2: Well, it reminds me a little bit, you know, going way back here now, but of when Greece made its run mm-hmm. at the Euros in 2004 and ended up successfully winning that. Right. And what was that? That was an incredible defensive effort. Take your chances on the counterattack. And be good on set pieces. Right now, it's a penalty kick. It's not exactly a set piece, but it's a chance created from a counterattack. You know, you put pressure on the defense in those circumstances. Sometimes you're going to get those whistles, and then you take advantage, right? So it's a very Mm -hmm. similar formula. Be airtight at the back, and then be opportunistic on offense. And you're right, in short tournaments... We've already seen it. That can pay dividends. If, if you're that disciplined and you're able to execute that game plan consistently, it can be very, very effective. And it has been so far for Canada.
3: So it's the fourth ever win against the U.S. in 62 all-time meetings, 20 years since Canada has beaten the U.S. That was back in March of 2001. I don't know what if I expected a victory coming out of this one, Jamie. I mean, I think I probably thought it's the U.S. They're going to beat Canada, but Canada yep. moves on to face Sweden. I want to take just a quick look at this U.S. side because, as I mentioned, there were some you know players on this U.S. team that played in the 2012 London game and won gold in that tournament. But... Are we starting to see, I don't want to say the decline of the U.S., or is the rest of the world just finally catching up with how how good their programs have been over the years?
2: I I think, and this is the boring answer, but I think it's probably a little bit of both, right? Mm -hmm. And again, we're going to chat with Sandra Prasino a little bit later in the show about this, but yeah, it's not as if America had been dominant, that the U.S. had been dominant in this tournament until they were stopped by Canada, right? I mean, they had to squeak past... The netherlands on penalty kicks in the quarterfinals just to make it that game easily could have gone against the u.s team so there were signs of weakness uh, signs Mm -hmm. of vulnerability from this american team but having said that you know we also shouldn't act as if oh well this is just a bad american team so yeah it's not it's not a big surprise they lost i mean this is still the top ranked team they still have stars and attacking power up and down that lineup so you're also seeing the rest of the world catch up. I think it's a little bit of both. This isn't, this isn't a typically dominant U.S. team, but the rest of the world has also made significant strides such that, you know, it's coming from both directions, right? It's a slight mm-hmm. decline from the U.S. team and major improvements from the rest of the world, and that has just rapidly shrunk the gap. Now, having said that, you know, if it's the next – if we go into the next – Women's World Cup, and the U.S. has uh, the type of squad that just romps through everyone again, I wouldn't be surprised. (laughs) I wouldn't be shocked by that, right? But in this moment of time, anyways, the gap has gotten a lot smaller.
3: Well... And I think it involves just the fact that changeover, right? So this U.S. squad is a very veteran squad. And Megan Rapino, after the match, made the mention. Like, it's really disappointing for them because they know it's kind of their last run with this squad. Alex Morgan, she's a mom now. She's older. Julie Ertz is older. Carly Lloyd, how old is she now? Like, 37, 39. And Megan Rapino, like, they're all getting up there. And we didn't really see the changeover to the young squad, unlike with Canada, who has kind of transitioned over the last eight years I want to say even four years to a bit of a younger side there's still Christine Sinclair and the Lisa Chapmans and you know Desiree Scotts of the Worlds and on the bench there was a couple of athletes um Erin McLeod was on the bench she wasn't actually active for this game Jamie but they've kind of transitioned and I just wanted to hear from Megan Rapino. Uh, Greg if we can play that clip on losing to Canada because she was and you can hear it in her voice yeah okay she was disappointed losing but she was also pretty emotional
0: Um, I mean, it sucks, obviously, um, it's, um, I mean, you never want to lose, you never want to lose in a, you know, world championship, you never want to lose Canada, obviously, um, and, you know, you don't want to lose, you know, playing the way that we did. I think every, every player, you know, in the locker room, um, you know, has a hundred things that we, we would all want to do better, um. I think that's probably the most frustrating part for for all of us. You know, we have a, a a great group preparing us and our coaching staff and you know our our extended staff and um yeah we just we got a good feeling in the group and everything and it, you know we just we we couldn't unlock it um so it's it's just frustrating um it's sad because these you know only come around every so often um obviously this one with the long buildup so it's just uh yeah it's a it's a tough one you know um i think this is a, a little bit of a a tough one to swallow and just kind of feels sad um i guess to my future not really no oh
3: we didn't need that at the end she was asked if she was going to be retiring or not and she didn't give an answer on that one jamie do, <laughs> do we f- you can't feel bad for the US. I don't feel bad for them. No, the absolutely thing, the not. One, Never. No, but the one thing I want to say about the US women, I have to respect them. And you could love or hate Megan Rapino. You could love and hate the arrogance that they have on this team. But what this women's that women's team stand for, I think resonates through all women's sport and women. They fight for equality and pay. They stand up for um, feminism and being female, and being an athlete, and just wanting to be equal with the male athlete. And I think it's females around the world because of what their stature is in the United States and worldwide. I gotta give them credit for at least, I know a lot of people like to separate politics and separate speaking out and using your platform in sports, but I will say this, I admire the way that they fight for what they want and what they think they deserve.
2: Well, and I, look with the American women's team, you know, I there's a reason that they are incredibly popular in the United mm-hmm. States, right? And it's because they have that swagger, that confidence, confidence, that assertiveness, right? Which is which is both on the field and off the field through the things that you're talking about, right? And it's it's no surprise at all that people in the United States gravitate towards cheering for that team, that they've become really iconic south of the border, you know. But it's also, and, and I'm not talking about the off the field stuff, but it also makes them an easy villain to root against yes, when your country yeah. is going up against them, right? Because they do have that confidence, and they've earned it. Their tra- their their track record of accomplishments is incredible. They have earned the right to be a little cocky, to have some swagger on the field. So I don't feel bad for them, but I also respect them. And, and, yes. and it's because you have so much respect for them as opponents that makes it all the sweeter when the Canadian team is finally able to get over them. So no, I don't feel bad at all, but I also yeah. don't see them as... Oh, those jerks! They're a bunch of losers. No, they're they're an incredibly talented, incredibly accomplished team. But yeah, their attitude makes it a little
3: sweeter. No, no question <laughs> yeah. about it. And I feel bad was probably the wrong term to use, but it was just uh, I just wanted to say like I just respect what they've used as a Absolutely. platform, you know, um, with their roles. Okay, so it's Sweden in the gold medal game. Um, Sweden's kind of good. I haven't watched a whole heck yep. a lot of them, but I'm just gonna go by these stats right here. They're coming in undefeated in this tournament. They finished 3-0 in the group stage, outscoring their opponents 9-2 in that stage. They've outscored their opponents 4-1 in the knockout stage. They did squeak by Australia in the semifinals 1-0, so 13-3 overall. They won the bronze in the World Cup in France in 2019, and they won silver in Rio. They lost to Germany, so they're looking to improve their color as well. Jamie, I don't know if you've watched them. We'll have to talk to Sandra about this coming up in about a couple hours' time, but... Canada, they're going to have to probably play exactly the way they did against yep. the U.S. if they're going to squeak out a gold medal.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to sit here and pretend to be an expert on this Sweden national women's <laughs> team. Having said that, you know, you read off their track record there. They're traditionally probably the second most successful team behind the United States in mm-hmm. international women's soccer. And as you said, based on all the stats they've put up so far through this tournament, you know, once again, a very, very talented very successful outfit that they've put together. So it is going to come down to that game plan. We've talked about with Canada, mm-hmm. right? The game plan that has gotten them to this point of committing to defending and then taking your opportunities on the counterattack. And it's going to be the keeper. It's going to be the back four, but it's going to be an entire team mentality that gets that done. Right. And look, if you can successfully execute that strategy and pull off an upset against the United States, you can do it against Sweden. doesn't mean mm-hmm. it's going to be easy but it's obviously very possible. Yes, Sweden are the favorites in this game. But Canada has a very, very plausible path to victory, too.
3: Just please don't go to PKs. Like, I'm just, I don't want to watch that. I don't think my heart Really? Can you don't want to
2: relive that? <laughs>
3: no, I don't want to relive elite Kings. Uh, good news for us, though, Jamie. We don't have to get up in the middle of the morning. Well, actually, it wouldn't matter to you because you have Friday off. But uh, the game well, is, oh, yeah, go ahead.
2: Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, you know, on the topic of penalty kicks, Karen, at least, yeah. I don't believe there's anybody of Swedish heritage at the station to challenge you to a bet oh, in, in case it goes oh, to penalty kicks. So so you won't have to, you'll, you'll be able to avoid any... Well, uh,
3: isn't Sat, it, Sat the afternoon oh, Sat on the People show? show? But
2: Sat, uh, Sat's going to be rooting for Canada. You're right, though. Sat did spend time in Sweden. That's a very good point. I, I cannot... I, uh, Sat Sat's too much of a nice guy to come out... You know, waving the Swedish flag, though. So, Sat is going to be all in on Canada. if I had And to
3: also, Sat's too nice to ever challenge me to any sort of bet. So. That's probably <laughs>
2: true. That's probably true.
3: Scotty, on the other hand, not so much. Uh, yeah. The match, though, is Thursday evening for us back here in Canada. Friday in uh, Tokyo, 7 p.m. Pacific time, 8 p.m. mountain time, so we can get our Canadian gear on and cheer on the women. So, we're set to get a 15th medal. We have 14 overall right now. 13 of them have been won by women, Jamie. The only one won by men, and one that we were at least expecting was Andre de Grasse. Not the color probably we wanted in the 100 meters, but he did win bronze. He's also, while we were sleeping, he also qualified for the 200 meters men's final. Um, He set a personal best, 19.73 seconds. That's also a Canadian record. Aaron Brown, another Canadian. He's also in the final, so potential, potential of two more medals from men. (laughs) <laughs> when you watch these guys, are you as fascinated as I am? Like I don't understand how bodies can move this fast.
2: Oh my no, it's it's completely absurd. It's just it, the physics of it just defy belief. And you know while we're on while we're talking about track, did you see the men's 400 meter hurdles?
0: Last I did, night? oh my God. Not,
2: not typically a premier event at the Olympics. But holy cow. I mean, the guy set what? The guy from Norway set the world record by almost a full second? Yes. And if you know anything about how world records usually fall, right? It's, you know, a hundredth of a second, a tenth of a second maybe. This was almost a whole second on a world record. That had stood for a long, long time. People thought this. People literally thought. People, experts in this race thought that this time that he ran was basically mm-hmm. impossible. And you could see his first of all, just the way he was moving. As you're saying, you're you're watching and thinking, how is this even possible? And then his reaction when he saw the time <laughs> after the race, like he was even he thought, what? Are you kidding me? Did I actually just do
3: that? He did the Hulk Hogan ripping his shirt exactly, off, trying yeah. to rip it off. It was incredible to watch. And he he's the guy who set the world record, I believe, earlier this year in a race. Yeah. But to think about the fact that he broke the world record. The American who fin- So this guy was from Norway. The American who finished second also broke the previous world yes. record. And the Brazilian who finished third was two one-hundredths of a second off that world record as well. So almost three racers in that race broke the world record. And it's not like that previous world record um, was like you know it wasn't it hadn't stood since 1992 or something like it was just set so the fact that they were able to all go that fast I I did hear like the heat even though it is really hot and the and the athletes are basically like breaking down after their races I've heard that the heat is actually really good to race in I don't know 40 degree temperature doesn't really make me want to go out and run but I guess if you gotta do it you gotta do it
2: (laughs) and apparently there's something with the track that's maybe a little bouncier so for hurdles you're able to put up better times I don't know you know how they do these things right they try they try to I remember back at the Beijing Olympics, there was talking about how they engineered the pool to try to generate right. some world records. And, you know, sometimes they do this to bring a little bit of extra interest. But I mean, whether it's a little extra springier or not, it's still an incredible accomplishment.
3: Oh, incredible. Uh, there's a lot of other things that did go on. The Olympics we will get into that as the show goes on. Jamie, NBA free agency. Some free agents get paid. I talked about uh, Blake Coleman getting some money and some term from the Calgary Flames. It's nothing compared to what happened in the NBA nope. yesterday. Oh, no, it always feels a
2: little unfair to NHL players that NBA free agency happens right right after because the salaries are just so disproportionate.
3: Just to give our listeners before we get to break, just a little idea. Shea Gilgus Alexander, the Canadian, got a max rookie deal of five years at one hundred and seventy two million dollars.
2: Not bad. Not bad.
3: Not bad at all. Okay, coming up, we are going to talk a little NHL. We haven't talked it at all this opening segment, but uh, our Tuesday regular Mike McKenna is going to join us. He'll recap a little bit of the free agency that happened uh, starting last Wednesday. And I have one important question to ask him, Jamie. It involves bison or buffalo. I don't know if you know about this, but I'm going to ask him. That. That's coming up next. I'm excited. On I'm excited. <laughs> That's coming up next on Rintoul and Sermon with JD Dodd in for Scott Rintoul.
2: Now back to Rintool and Sermon.
3: It is Rintool and Sermon. Karen Sermon and Jamie Dodd for the next two weeks as Scott is on vacation. A text just came in, Jamie, to the 650-650 inbox. Karen, did I miss your beer mile? The answer is no. I have been training vigorously for it um, while drinking a lot of beer on vacation. (laughs) Uh, Scott, (laughs) Scott, Scott is uh, he's on vacation for the next two weeks. Then I'm on vacation for another week. So I think we're going to have to push it back till the end of August. But I promise you, listeners, we will get it done. I will not pull out of this bet. I am. I will do my duty and get it done. Uh, a little NHL talk now for the next uh, 20 minutes or so. We are joined with our Tuesday regular, Mike McKenna, former NHL goaltender and NHL analyst. Mike, good morning. How are you?
1: Oh, I am just excellent here. You got the loud sounds of people doing lawn work. It's a nice <laughs> Tuesday, you know? That's, that's really the sign of the offseason, isn't it?
3: I get that every Monday, Mike, at about 10 a.m pacific time that's when i have like three condo complexes on my kitchen window (laughs) where i sit by and one of them is at about 10 a.m and it's a a leaf blower is always nice and loud and you can hear it on the mic so hey we're used to it working from home this is what happens in covid days my first question i have to ask you mike are you doing this interview said by you got lawn equipment going on do you have a bison or a buffalo also walking by while you're doing this interview
1: well thankfully not today we had a (laughs) close encounter of the of the hoofed kind. <laughs> this yeah. past week It's fun uh you know I live in suburban St. Louis and had a friend of mine in along with his daughter and and his family and kind of hit all the sights around here and yeah we had a whole herd of buffalo go right past the car. I mean I could have wa- reached out and grabbed its horn, you know, it just it kept walking and then the herd gets past And I look up, and it's like, here comes the big dog, like the head of the table, (laughs) trotting on down. And he must have been hiding behind a car at the start of the line in this park we were at, because I didn't see him at first. And then all of a sudden, I was like, whoa, this thing's bigger than the Toyota in front of us. And they're just incredible animals. They walk by, no problem. And we just sat in the car a little nervous and got a whole eye full of nature.
3: (laughs) Pretty cool for the kids, I'm assuming, though, right?
1: Oh, God, yeah. The kids just love anything that has to do with animals. And, right. I mean, it it really gets your heart rate up when something that big goes by. You know, uh-huh. it's amazing to think that the that bison were so prevalent in the millions and millions throughout all of North America to what their herd has currently dwindled down to at some point. Uh-huh. But, man, like... Think about just being out on the plains back in the day and here comes the hurry. You just you'd run a run for the hills, man.
3: hmm Yes, you would. I gotta say, so you're in suburban St. Louis. That is one of my favorite, most underrated towns I've ever been to. I just love it. It's
1: though. a it's amazing to think of how many family friendly things are here and affordable. Yeah. You know, every, a lot of things are free or a nominal price and it's a big reason why so many alumni from the St. Louis Blues end up retiring and staying around at St. Mm-hmm. Louis is and let's face it too, like Housing is relatively affordable in this city. There's jobs available for alumni. It's a good network, and um, it's always cool to see that. You know, some of the cities that really latch on and players end up remaining there post career, I think, is really a true testament to the city, the cities that they play in.
3: For me, it was Six Flags. Love the Six Flags there. <laughs>
1: <laughs> a season pass holder for many years. I know, awesome. <laughs> same boat.
3: Okay, we should talk about hockey now. Uh, Lots of things have happened since specifically last Wednesday. NHL free agency opened, but one of the big things, and we'll start with Vancouver and move to Calgary in a little bit, but the Vancouver Canucks, three trades, 15 free agent signings, two buyouts, but I want to ask you about what they got from Arizona. They got rid of the contracts of erickson beagle russell they also had to give a couple of picks in that including a first round pick but they got oliver ekman larson who of course mike they were inter- interested in last season and connor garland let's look at oliver ekman larson first he's had a bit of a few down years you've watched him play over the last couple of years what are the canucks getting in him
1: well, that's a good question i played with him in 20 i guess 15 when i was with the coyotes and um you know, it felt like he was right at the peak of his career. And even at that point when he signed his big contract, there was still the hope that there was more to give from Oliver Ekman Larson. It was one of those where Shane Doan retires. He's their best player at the time. He's supposed to be the face of the franchise, blah, blah, blah. You put the C on him and his game starts to fall off a little bit. And I think it's more of an indictment of how Jacob Chickren has really taken over in Arizona as the true number one. You know, I think that that was a bigger factor, more so than ekman Larson's game really going away. He never had a great nose for the net. Uh, it's it's been interesting to see how that's fallen off. The actual scoring, not the assists, but the goals. Uh, he's fairly consistent when it comes offensively. I just don't know what the Canucks are getting. I think to me, it's a hope that he brings his game back to the way it once was and you play it out from there it's a big swing i think the big key to the deal is garland though that Mm -hmm. he's a fire plug spark plug i should fire plug i don't even know what that is i just combined spark plug with firefly uh but uh i think garland's the key to it and it's just amazing to me how all the contracts that raised a lot of eyebrows a few years ago when they were signed with the canucks beagle roussel when erickson ended up getting traded They're all gone in one fell swoop. It's pretty unbelievable to see that turnover turnover happen really in one trade, one transaction.
2: Yeah, it it, uh, raised a lot of eyebrows here in Vancouver when it did go down, Mike, I can tell you that. I don't think anyone expected them, one, to move all three of those players, let alone to do it uh, in the same transaction. The other Canucks offseason addition that I really wanted to ask you about is Yarrow Halak as the backup for Thatcher Demko. And I I know last offseason... You were a little skeptical about the fit of Braden Holtby in Vancouver, and you were right. It didn't work out as either (laughs) side would have hoped for. What do you think about the fit of Yaroslav Halak as a backup now in Vancouver?
1: I wasn't surprised by Holtby. You know, I hadn't, frankly, liked his game for the better part of two and a half years when he came, and a year and a half before he showed up in Vancouver and... Um, I thought it would be a a pairing that would probably work pretty well with Ian Clark because he has such a reputation of being able to turn someone's game around to really refine it. I do think that the short runway of the 56 game schedule probably hurt Braden Holtby, you know, and not having time before camp to really work in with it. And, you know, ultimately, his salary is what did in that contract, not just the fit. I mean, obviously. His numbers weren't what they expected last year. I think they probably would have been okay running a second season with him if they didn't need that cap space so desperately. Um, But I really like bringing in Yarrow Halak. I mean, to me, it's a guy who's probably been paid under market value for the last three or four years. He seems to really value fit, and there's opportunity. You know, with Thatcher Demko, who did a great job last year, you're still with a young goaltender. There's still going to be a chance to play, and Halak's – frankly, been able to perform in just about any setting, whether he's been a starter, a 1A, 1B, a backup, he continues to go. And he should be a really good mesh with Ian Clark. Yara Holak is a very restrained goaltender. He's controlled. He has details to his game. He's structured. That's the type of goalie that Clark likes to work with and that he sees results. So I think it's a really good mesh. Uh, and bringing him in buys a bit more time as well for Mikey DiPietro mm-hmm. to finally have another full season of pro hockey. Yeah. Last year, hardly played at all. It's important for him to play games this year in the professional ranks.
2: Well, and it sounds like by all reports, the plan for the, the new staff in Abbotsford where the Canucks AHL team is moving is to to really give Mikey DiPietro a chance to be the workhorse for that team mm-hmm. for the exact reason you're saying that just, just on the topic of Halak, you know, you make a good point because obviously Demko was fantastic last year, took over as the starter, but this will also be his first full 82 game season as a number one in the NHL. So it, it makes sense, doesn't it, for the Canucks to bring in somebody that, you know, if, if Demko does slip a little, they're confident that Halak can play 30, 35 games if needed.
1: And they're confident that Halak can play playoff games if needed, too. It's not just the regular season. Um, I mean, I know we're digging in the archives here, but remember that run that Halak went on with the Montreal Canadiens over Carey Price years ago that ended up setting him up for the big ticket in St. Louis and following his, uh, following that, going to Long Island and then parlaying that into his time with the Bruins. The Bruins were always comfortable bringing in Halak because – with Tuukka Rask, there was uncertainty, You know, injuries, other things going on. They knew they needed somebody who could play. That was a veteran. They liked him several years before he even came to Boston. And, and I think that that's really what you're looking at in the NHL today is you've got to have two goaltenders that can play. Yes, you need prospects. Yes, you need them to develop in the minors, but they also need to reach the NHL at the right time with some momentum, with them playing well with a full season or two under their belts. Right now, Mikey DPHO doesn't have that. I'm sure he'd be the first to say, I just need to play games. Uh, and doing that with Halak, bringing him in, you got regular season lockdown. He can give Dumco whatever he needs. And then when it comes playoff time, you got a second ace in the hole. And I think that's really important, especially from the belief in the locker room. It really matters when it comes to the players, if they really believe that their goaltenders can carry them.
2: And turning to the Calgary Flames goaltending situation here, Mike, you know, obviously Jacob Markstrom, he didn't have his best season, but he he picked up towards the end of the year last year, still viewed as a very, very, uh, as a quality goalie in the NHL. But I look at their backup and they brought in Dan Vladar and right now he would probably be the backup on opening night, depending on if they make any more moves or not. And I just look at Dan Vladar, you know, he's 23, he's only played five NHL games does it concern you at all if that's the plan to back up Jacob Markstrom? Because we've seen in the past when Markstrom gets overworked, his game starts to slip. And I just wonder if, you know, having an inexperienced backup is going to lead you to overplay and overwork Jacob Markstrom.
1: I'm not really sure what to make of this because I know Calgary was definitely interested in a lot of goaltenders in proven established NHL goaltenders. Um, and frankly, struck out on them and. You know you get end up going to a young goaltender with upside big goalie 6-5 vladar is the prototypical nhl goalie for today's game and what i like about it is that he went to providence he played really well he grew his game in a kind of an organic way coming over to the ushl which is becoming more typical of european goaltenders But not going to major junior, not going to college. He comes straight from the USHL to the ECHL slash AHL on a deal with the Bruins. And they handled him the right way. They let him play games in the ECHL. Get used to the speed of it. Come up to Providence. First year is okay. But I think that Vladar is a legit NHL prospect. I'm not sure what his ceiling is. It's definitely a roll of the dice for the Calgary Flames. I would have expected them to get somebody more established. I'm not sure what the identity of that team is. I'm not sure that Vladar is going to walk in that room and command a whole lot of, uh, frankly, a lot of respect in terms of himself as a goaltender. He's going to have to earn it which isn't a bad position as a goalie, but sometimes that's your reality. He's going to have to earn it. And for Jacob Markstrom, you know, last year to me was a bookend season, started off well, middle of the year, lost it a bit, picked it up towards the end. For him, it's just about making sure he's not doing too much. Play the game. He doesn't have to prove anything to his teammates any longer. Even with that big ticket, you come in and you're still thinking you've got to prove yourself. He doesn't have to. He just has to play. He's got all the tools in the world, but he also needs that team to to respond and play better in front of him. Calgary's going to have to pick up some grit if they want to be able to play, play deeper this year than they have in the past.
3: And we're speaking with Mike McKenna, former NHL goaltender, NHL analyst. Now, the biggest flash the Flames made Mike in free agency was signing two time Stanley Cup champion Blake Coleman to a six year deal that will pay him $4.9 million annually. He's at 29 age, and I don't want to go back to the 20, I believe it was 15, 16 offseason where we saw a lot of big contracts given out to 29, 30 year olds. But what did you think of this deal for Calgary?
1: it's a big ticket. That's a lot of numbers thrown around. I know he's want to stand the cup. He's he's a good player. I've always liked him. Um I'm just not sure if what you saw happen in Tampa is going to be replicated. You know, does he have the players surrounding him to do? So I believe in him. I know a lot of people do, but that's that's a big commitment. And I I just don't know who he's going to play with, frankly, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's what it always comes down to for me is what's it going to look like when he doesn't have spark plugs with him when he's got to do it all himself. You know, that that middle pack of the Calgary Flames to me is a question mark. It's a concern, even the top end at times. Um, but I do think if you can get Coleman playing at, at times along with Kachuk or or making space for himself, it'll be there. I was just surprised that it seemed like a pretty rich deal for me. It seemed like you're bringing in a little bit of uh, Stanley Cup flavor at a premium. Uh, but as we know, it can be hard to – to get players to come into uh, the Canadian markets at times mm-hmm. and to make that contract work. Sometimes you got to go a little bit above and beyond. So this is what I'm skeptical of. I really, really like Blake Coleman as a player. I just hope that the performance level of him matches that contract, even two, three years down the road. Cause we've all seen this before, yeah. you know, you sign a five, four, five, four five, $6 million contract and your performance doesn't quite lived up to it. And now those people are getting bought out. So uh, I, I, I like the player. I'm just not sure that that is going to work for Calgary.
3: And I always get concerned with these, Mike, when you look at, okay, he was on a great, absolutely great line in Tampa Bay, but it was a specific line with Yanni Gord and yes. Barkley Goudreau. And it was a third line role and they succeeded very well at what they were doing. And then you bring a guy in, not saying this will happen with Coleman, but just in general, you bring a guy in, give him a bit more money, but that money kind of leads to a second or first line role
1: mm-hmm and, and I think that's part of your question mark is is this player ready for prime time? You always hope that players are ready to take a step. You know, he's consistently been you know half a point a game guy in the NHL. If he brings that to the Calgary Flames a half a point a game at five million bucks a year almost, oh, that might be stretching it a little bit, you know that's kind of your four million dollar range and at six years. And his age again at 29 years old. It's not like he's 26 or seven. So again, I'd say there's some healthy skepticism of this, but I do think there's players that he could go alongside. You know, if he mm-hmm. if he can manage to get that time with players who will bring him along, it can happen. Uh, I like Manjiapan a lot. Like I just I'm not sure where it's going to lead.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh, Just going up to Edmonton quickly, want to take a look about uh, with what they did. Duncan Keith in, Ethan Bear out. They re-signed Tyson Berry, brought in Cody Ceci on the defense, signed Zach Hyman to that seven-year deal, also got Warren Fogle. They also re-signed Mike Smith to a two-year deal. Still have Miko Koskinen. When you look at what the Oilers did, do you think they got better? Do you think they got worse? Kind of stayed the same course?
1: I just see the Edmonton – I see the Oilers treading a lot of water. You know, I think they've done a valiant job, Ken Holland is, of trying to shake things up, but they just keep striking out, it seems like, uh, with everyone except for Hyman. You know, there's other teams that – you know, they were looking to bring in Darcy Kemper from all the reports we've seen, and now they're right back with Mike Smith and Miko Koskinen. Where is that going to lead? Um, I don't know. Again, you've got Connor McDavid, Leon Idol, and a whole cast of characters alongside of them – but I don't know if they truly believe that what they have in goal is going to win them a Stanley Cup. Now, that's no indictment of Mike Smith, who had one of the best seasons of his career last year. It's more of an indictment of the lack of depth. They weren't happy with Koskinen. Stuart Skinner isn't ready right now. They're walking on the tightrope right now with Mike Smith and Mike Smith alone. And if he reverts back to his form from a couple of seasons ago, they're not going anywhere. Uh, that's a tough place to be, especially with teams in this league that have two goaltenders they can rely on. Um, I, I liked Barry there last year. I don't think bringing Cody Ceci in is going to make them any better defensively. Uh, yes, he can move the puck, but if that's just what you're going for, where is it spread out? And the, I mean, the no move clauses are mm-hmm. amazing to see. I just, it's hard for me to square the number of no movement clauses that have been handed out with trying to build a team that has any flexibility in a cap world, even two years from now. I understand it's Edmonton. I know you have to do things to try to get the players, but I'll tell you what, I would rather give more money than I would a no move or a no trade clause. Tying your hands up in a market like that it's risky. Uh, It's not what I would do in that scenario. And you have to think that the windows are gonna be there for a while, with McDavid and Dreisidal and everyone, but you don't know. There still needs to be more there's been upheaval evil in the back end, but they're still missing that little bit. And Larson going out the window is not gonna help either.
2: Well, and it always seems, Mike, with Edmonton, that there's a sense of almost desperation, right, to improve the yep. team right here, right now, because you do have Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisidel, and you know, there's this thought that you're trying to keep them happy. And you know, just to your point about the changes they made on defense, obviously losing Adam Larson Bringing in Cody CC, bringing in Duncan Keith, it doesn't look like a particularly strong defensive group. And, you know, you get the sense that if Edmonton ends up leading goals this year, there's going to be a lot of fingers pointed towards Mike Smith and Miko Koskinen. Yeah. But you also have to acknowledge, you know, this is not necessarily a defensive juggernaut playing in front of the crease either.
1: Well, they're going to have to outscore everybody. And that's basically what they've been trying to do now forever. and that's the part that I don't see changing is that you've brought in a lot of the same type of player you know Duncan Keith yeah I think Duncan Keith let's look at him second line you're looking at a second pairing for Keith I think that's better for him it takes some pressure off that he had um, playing in Chicago it should probably help him but nobody on that defensive core to me screams lockdown defenseman that's going to just crush the other team and I'm not just talking about one player. You need like two or three of those guys to be successful. You can't just expect, you can't expect Chris Russell to go out and block nine thousand shots a year, and there's your (laughs) tough defenseman. Okay, like you need to be able to possess the puck, Uh, and you need to do it in your zone as quick as you can and go the other direction. So, um, have they probably made the decor? even more mobile, I think maybe in some ways. But all that's doing is playing the long game of we're going to outscore everybody and we're really hoping that Mike Smith plays well. That's To me, that's the Edmonton Oilers. Right there, in a nutshell. We're going to try to outscore everybody and we hope Mike plays well.
2: Not not necessarily a gamble I would want to be in on, but uh, we'll see how it works out for them this year coming off, as you say, one of Mike Smith's best years in his career. I want to ask you quickly about the Seattle Kraken, because I thought one of the surprises in free agency in the goalie carousel was that Philip Grubauer ended up there. So it looks like they will go with a Grubauer and Chris Mm Dreger starter backup 1A, 1B, whatever you want to call it. What do you think about the situation in the crease for the Kraken?
1: Well, when we talked last... You know, recently, I, I felt like the Kraken, I thought it just had nothing but question marks and goal. If they were going to go Dreger and Vanacek uh, and Decord waiting again, like, I think that the expansion teams, not that we're going to have another one anytime soon here, everybody, but everybody looks to what the Vegas Golden Knights did and they believe. There's no reason why the Seattle Kraken can't be competitive this year any longer. The NHL wants them to be competitive. They've they've set the expansion draft up in a way to try to give them a chance to be successful and provide and build a real team. So you need a goaltender with some weight. You bring in Grubauer. He's a Vezina finalist. Adding a sixth year to the term probably helped to get him in the door in the first place. But that's question mark number one. That's gone. You know, you can walk in that locker room as a player and now go, okay, this guy's been there. He's performed. He won a cup in Washington. Even though he wasn't the starter, he did play a couple games early. He has that experience. Great season with Colorado. Only question is him staying healthy. And if he's not healthy, people really are high on Chris Dreger, and they should be. He performed well in Florida. He didn't see a high volume of really difficult shots when he was there. But people liked what they saw and think he has that upside. And Duck cords a really nice prospect. Edmonton was, or no, sorry, not Edmonton. Ottawa thought they may be losing somebody in their goalie ranks in the past couple of years. Sure enough, they did. So um, I really like the goaltending for the Kraken, especially as an expansion club. They're less than $10 million under the cap. I probably still would have gone for Carey Price if I was given that option, but <laughs> that's just me. Um, so I, I think they're in a good spot. It was a really good move by Ron Francis, and especially just picking up. You know, what, Carol, what uh, Colorado cast aside, it surprised me. I thought for sure that they would do what they could to keep Grubauer in the fold.
3: Mike, just one more question for myself. Uh, the Mark andre Fleury, it's the era's over in Vegas. He was traded to Chicago, and a little bit of, well, he or won't he, he is going to report to Chicago, and they've trotted him out in the Blackhawks' uniform. But will this hurt the Golden Knights, or is Robin Lehner, if he stays healthy, can handle that 50-plus starter role for the Golden Knights? No.
1: They're not, as a, they're not as strong in goal as they were last season. And we're kind of back to the scenario where they had Marc-Andre Fleury and Malcolm Subban a couple of years ago, and they got rid of Subban to get a better goaltender so that they could go deep in the playoffs. That's what they said publicly. And now you're right back to it. Now, Laurent Bossois, I like his game. I think it's a great fit for him in Vegas. He has the opportunity to actually rebrand himself now if he plays well enough to get himself in the conversation to start more games with other teams in other places, because this is not a long-term thing. This is a band-aid fix for the golden Knights until Logan Thompson is ready in the American hockey league. I could easily see Bressois playing one year and being shipped out of town after that. If he plays well and creates a market for himself, if Thompson's ready, I'm not sure about Robin Leonard on the long course of the season. He's played well previously. Uh, when he's played a lot of hockey, but he seems to have played his best when he does have a strong secondary goaltender. So, you know, you're you're hoping one for health. Everybody's always hoping for health. But Vegas is not as strong as in goal as they were last season by any stretch. Uh, but they are more flexible now with the cap, and that's what they were desiring. So, um, I like where they are. I like where this is for Bressois. But, again, uh, it's another big swing at your most important position that you're hoping is going to be able to carry you to a Stanley Cup.
3: Hey, Mike, thank you so much for joining us again this Tuesday, maybe next week when we talk to you, if we still are talking to you. I'm not sure if you're going on vacation or not, but maybe Jack (laughs) Eichel will actually be traded from the Buffalo Sabres a week from now. Who knows?
1: Eh, yeah, they may, they may have to move mountains for that to happen. I, mean, I don't place bets, but this is what I'm considering the over-under on here, folks.
3: Mm. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, Mike, have a good week and enjoy uh, the hot and heat and humidity that I'm sure is in St. Louis right now.
1: Yep. Yeah, anytime. Always good chatting. Take care.
3: That is Mike McKenna, our NHL Tuesday analyst every week. Jamie, a lot of insights as well. Were you surprised that Marc-Andre Fleury... Like, I I found this whole situation being like, will he or won't he, or he doesn't want to move. I understand not moving your family, and he's got a young family. I totally get that. But my thought was, you're going to be one of the Team Canada goaltenders in 2022. Like, you can't not play. Right.
2: Well, I wonder if it was a bit of poker from him and his mm-hmm. agent, right? If Like, they had to know that Vegas was looking to move on for a goalie, for, move on from one of their goalies, right? So if you put it out there... Hey, if, if Marc-Andre Fleury gets traded, there's a chance he won't report. Maybe you slightly lessen the possibility of that trade happening, right, if your goal is to stay in Vegas. So I think this is maybe a situation where Chicago called his bluff. And as you say, he's such a competitive guy, right? He can see another shot at the Olympics potentially coming up not in not that long. So I'm, I'm not surprised, ultimately, that he's going to report.
3: One hour in the books, a couple more to go. We're going to be joined uh, in about 30 minutes time by Sandra Prusina, afternoon sports anchor on 660 News in Calgary to talk about that impressive Canada win over the United States. Canada will, will play for gold now at the Olympics in women's soccer. But, Jamie, coming up after the break, I have one of the most important questions I'm ever going to ask you. We're going to get pretty Ooh. deep, okay? Are you ready? Exciting. Okay, that's coming up next on tool and Sermon across the Sportsnet Radio Network.
2: You're listening to Rintoul and Sermon.
3: This is Rintoul and Sermon for this Tuesday morning. Scott Rintoul on vacation, so Jamie Dodd is my co-host for the next two weeks, or most of the next two weeks, that is, Jamie. That's um, Have you been watching a lot of the Olympics?
2: I've been trying to, yeah, as much as I can, you know, in between moving and all that, but I've been trying Mm to make it a point kind of every night to sit down and, and at least catch some of the coverage.
3: Yeah, it's weird because a lot of the big events go while we're sleeping, so you have to get up for it. But they do show a lot of the replays throughout the day. We're going to have a little bit fun later on in the show, but I want to tease it right now. 650-650-960-960. Get your comments in because I want to know, we want to know... Are there any obscure sports that you've really gotten into watching these Olympics? Because there's a lot of sports, Jamie, that we would never watch. I would never watch. Also, they're just not on TV, (laughs) right? Like, I don't even know. Even if
2: if you wanted to, you don't have a a really easy way to do it.
3: Like, I'm going to just tease. Mine's badminton. And I watched the duo- Ladies, badminton gold medal game. Let me tell you, that was probably as most captivated I've been for an event that didn't involve Canada. It was incredible. But it's badminton, right? You're thinking, why would I watch this? It was absolutely, absolutely incredible. So, our listeners, six fifty, six fifty nine, sixty, nine sixty. Is there like an obscure event where you're just like, this is much what must watch TV? Jamie, I promised you a very important question before the break. All right. Okay. I want to know, are you a suitcase unpacker? Now, don't. Think about moving this past weekend. Okay. Okay. Like, obviously, you're going to unpack all that stuff, right? Right. Get in, move in. But when you go on vacation, do you come back and immediately unpack your suitcase, do your laundry, put everything away, it's back to normal?
2: No, not immediately. It it, (laughs) it lags for a few days. That's that's for sure.
3: Okay. So that is my thing. So we come back from vacation. And I'm usually a... I live out of my suitcase for a few days. Like, you know, I'll put it in the laundry. It needs to go into the laundry. But there's probably a bunch of clothes that I haven't worn, so I can just wear them out of the suitcase, right. put them in the laundry as I go, and then go from there. I was very efficient on this trip. I don't know why. Maybe it's because, like, I work out of my living room, and I didn't want to have all the clutter. But for the first <laughs> time ever, I literally got home, put everything away, did my... did did my uh, laundry, I put like the 18 million Yetis that we took on this trip away, like I was very, I need this house to look pristine while I get on air, I was very proud of myself.
2: Good for you, you've you've turned over a new leaf maybe, yeah, I, I would love to be the kind of person who, you know, can't stand clutter and immediately cleans up mm-hmm. after you come home from a vacation or anything like that, I am decidedly not that kind of person, very, very much <laughs> not, I, I wouldn't say it's you know, specifically on the unpacking after a vacation, yeah, we're talking you know, yeah. Few, a few days, maybe. It's not like I days. let it linger for weeks or anything. But, yeah, no, I am not one of those people who immediately gets in the door and is, uh, you know, tearing my suitcase apart.
3: I will say this. The car is still half full. So there's that. We have taken a lot. All the floaties and everything, like the stuff that we don't need, that is definitely still in there. I did when I used to work for and cover the BC Lions and was on the road with them as their sideline reporter. I would literally just leave that suitcase. I'd wash the few things that right. I wore and put them back in because I was on the road almost Every other weekend or three weeks in a row Or whatever the case was and it's like no I basically Lived out of my suitcase when during that time So
2: but. you must have picked up some kind of Like expert level packing And flying oh, and traveling yes. tips In the course of that job right because I always feel Like an amateur when I have to pack I know There's a, a these special tricks You can do to maximize your space and mm-hmm. Oh you know if you roll up your suit jacket Like this it won't get wrinkled and I know Those things exist but I am just <laughs> Awful at it. I, I can't figure them out I'm terrible At it it never works for me but You must be an expert level passer or packer, excuse
3: me. The one good thing is, yes, the rolling actually does work. Like, that totally works. I don't know so much for the wrinkles, but to just the efficiency of what you can pack. Yeah, exactly. So the rolling does work. Um, Luckily for me, I was on the sidelines and it was on Radio, not television. So, right, I mean, I was right. literally wearing just a logo so T-shirt. So, who cares if it's wrinkled? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was wearing a logo T-shirt from the company and, like, Lulu's on the sidelines, right? Because I wasn't on television. So, it was pretty easy for me, pretty comfortable. But I remember running into Sarah Orleski, who was, works for the other company. Right. But, you know, her is a little bit more difficult. There's a lot of taking on clothing bags on the on the flights. So you're not putting them in the suitcase because you just can't have the wrinkled TV. Or just making sure, Jamie, that you have an iron in your hotel room That is we'll always key We'll have
2: to um, Next time we get uh, Baller Rick Ball on, yeah. on here We'll have to ask him What his, his Traveling packing tips are Because he's certainly Done it a lot You know he's on TV So he's got it. He's got to be looking sharp mm-hmm. When he gets there we'll, we'll have to See if he has any Insights for us
3: I will say this though too I came home And I think I pack like I, I'm a summer dress girl. I wore like 10 summer dresses or I took them 10. I think I wore three right. over the course. So when I go back to Winnipeg in a couple of weeks, I know how to downgrade my packing. Cause I'm like, I'm not going to wear half of what's in my suitcase. It was I, like um, a, go ahead. Yeah.
2: I, I'm an overpacker because, mm-hmm, well, here's mm-hmm. the thing. I, I will say this. Once you choose the size of suitcase or the size of duffel bag or whatever it is, once you choose that, I'm going to fill mm-hmm. it, right? There's no yes. point in, in packing a half-empty suitcase. So sometimes we'll go somewhere and my wife will say, why are you packing that much? We're not going to use it. It's like, well, I have this size of bag. I can't use a smaller one. I have this <laughs> size of bag. Why wouldn't I put it in? It's not as if it's going to make it too heavy. It's just clothes. Why wouldn't I give myself the extra flexibility and fill it all the way up?
3: I love hearing from a guy that you're an overpacker because usually the female sex, oh, I we get, like, we get the, you know, always made fun of because we're overpackers and my boyfriend makes fun of me all the time. But to hear from you, I'm very proud that you were one of us, Jamie.
2: Well here and it's not as if you know sometimes you hear overpacking and you think oh they're bringing three bags or anything no it's not that it's just once you choose mm-hmm. once you select the appropriate bag yeah fill it. use use that capacity why let that capacity go to waste that's my motto uh, unsigned text here in the 650 650 inbox inbox how do people do it as soon as you get home and walk in that door the suitcase goes on the bed and instantly gets emptied and put away no kudos to you at least give yourself a lag period i mean especially if it's international travel and you're jet-lagged or anything like that you gotta cut yourself a break here give yourself just a minute to get off your feet relax before you get it, get on with your chores.
3: Well, and that's why I was actually very proud of myself that I did do the efficiency of unpacking that I did because of the fact that like I was exhausted when I got home on Sunday after a week away. Like The things that you can put your body through a week on vacation when you're enjoying a week on vacation, Jamie, let's just say I think I probably did all of those. And uh, So when I came back on Sunday, I was just bagged. And I'm like, no, but I just don't want the house to look messy for a week because if I didn't do it then it was going to probably, right. you know, it'll probably stay that way till I leave in two weeks time
2: It's never going to get done if you don't do it then yeah, I, I, I totally understand what you mean
3: Instead of packing extra clothes, I pack my pillow Dempster down. Oh my god, okay, just quickly before we get on to the next subject, I do have to tell this story I left my $200 pillow in the hotel and I didn't oh, realize no. it, yes and it's an expensive one because I've got a really bad neck and a really bad back so I've invested the money to do this we got to, from a, from people who know a Soyuz on the number three on the crow's nest, we're heading home and we've got past Princeton and it's about hour and a half, two hours outside of a Soyuz. And I'm thinking, oh my God, I left my pillow. And boyfriend's like, that's, it may be $200, but it's not worth it to go back through the right. smoke, get it. So I called the hotel and then she's like, okay, I'll get in touch with housekeeping. I keep calling the hotel back. Their number doesn't work anymore. I don't understand. Ugh. It's the holiday end. Like, why is this not happening? I had someone in a Soyuz that could have gone, picked it up and brought it back to the lower mainland when they were done. But this trip just became $200 more expensive because I left my pillow in the hotel.
2: That's tough. And a good pillow. I have a memory foam pillow as well. And you become mm. you know, very, very accustomed to those pillows, right? Going back to the old style pillow is very, oh. very difficult once you've gotten used to to that pillow. So I feel your pain. That would be a really Ugh. tough adjustment for me. I'm
3: so choked because this week now I have to go buy a new pillow. <laughs> I just don't want to have to drop $200 on it. It's like I had a discount code the last time too. So it was a little cheaper, but I'm like, uh, you got to do what you got to do though for no neck pain, Jamie, and no back pain. Anyways, let's get on the topic of NBA free agency where you want, like it came up at me pretty close, like, or pretty quickly. I should say, because I was, you know, you're seeing Woj and Shams drop all the bombs on Twitter I'm like when is NBA free agency is it later this week it's like no it's today at three o'clock it's right now time it is right now Kyle Lowry is no longer a member of the Toronto Raptors the deal's not made official yet it's a sign and trade with Miami three-year deal 90 million dollars I think they're just trying to wait on kind of what's coming back the other way because Goran Dragic he's coming back in the deal but he may or may not stay a Raptor there may be another trade going so they might want some other compensation either way I digress Kyle Lowry is no longer a Toronto Raptor. How will you remember him?
2: Well, I'm not a Raptors fan per se, but I mm-hmm. also, you know, I know sometimes people out West get get bent out of shape about teams based in Toronto and they become Raptors haters or, or Leafs haters or Jays haters. And I'm not a Raptors hater either, but I'll remember Kyle Lowry as, I mean, really the, the greatest Raptor of all time. And, and also specifically mm-hmm. as an incredible competitor, right? Somebody who was always invested in not just performing well, but in helping his team perform well, perform well, yeah. right? And it, it, he was invested in winning. And it, it's such a cliche to say, oh, this guy does all the little things. Uh, no, no disrespect to Louis Erickson, but I mean, Kyle Lowry really <laughs> did does do it. all the little <laughs> things and all the gritty things, right? I mean, just the, the sheer number of charges he would take his ability, his, his effort on defense, all of those things, you know, his, his numbers, his traditional production have declined has declined a little bit in the last couple of years as he's gotten older, but he still has an incredible impact on winning because he mm-hmm. is such a smart, engaged, competitive player
3: my th- when I think of him, I think of heart and I think of charges, and I think they go together right he was yep. Always, yep. he was always willing to put his body on the line to win for his team and <sighs> Yeah, the production was down, like you said. But he was still very effective. And I think he'll be very effective for this Miami Heat team. We're going to talk to Donovan Bennett a little bit later, in the next hour or so, I believe. And we'll get his take on you know, him joining Jimmy Butler and Bam Adebayo in Miami. But it just he was just always that competitor night in, night out. And if you needed a big shot, he was there to make that big three. And I just think that I hope what he brought to this team will translate going forward because he wasn't ever a star and he couldn't win you the big game. But when they got Kawhi, he was the great complimentary piece. Right. Right. And then now he's gone and there's no real stars on this Raptors team. Say what you want about Pascal Siakam, OG Ananobi. Maybe they'll finally eventually grow into that. Um, I love Fred Van Van Vliet, but it's like, okay, what – is this team without Kyle Lowry? I just hope what he brought to the team can translate into those players just in p- bringing it night in and night out because if this team's going to be successful moving forward, they need that from everybody on the on the court, I feel.
2: Well, and that's what the Raptors are betting, right? That the culture yeah. that you know they rave about there and that they believe in so much that Kyle Lowry helped establish over his tenure in Toronto, they're hoping that culture can survive without him and and that it's already been transferred to those guys you mentioned right Siakam and Fred Fred Vliet, that those three now will be the new standard setters in Toronto and that they can you know continue to make it a place where players go and get better where young players develop where mm-hmm. players reach their potential Kyle Lowry is a big part of that and you're right it's it's a gamble to to hope that it will continue it's not a bad gamble i can i can see it working out for sure but it's a question mark no doubt about it
3: well, it's the East. There's always, you know, you've got the the group at the top, but there's always that kind of group in the middle, like pushing for the playoffs, and they'll yep. probably compete for a playoff spot, whether they make it or not. Um, the biggest <laughs> transaction of the day, I was surprised by this. Well, maybe I shouldn't be. It's the NBA. Chris Paul. So he, he declined his player option and then re-signed a new deal with the Phoenix Suns. It's a four-year deal, which takes him to, I believe, he's 40, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. Um, $120 million, Jamie, if he plays the entirety of this deal, it's $419.9 million he'll have made over his career, which is just insane for somebody who's never won an NBA title. But the question is to me, like, I look at the West and I think of him going back to Phoenix and I know they went to the NBA finals and I know he probably has a great dynamic with Monty Williams and Devin Booker and other players on that team and believes in them going forward. But I look at the West and I think, I see Phoenix next year as maybe like a five seat.
2: Well, I don't know. It's interesting, though, because Kawhi Leonard opted out in L.A. We don't know how that situation is going to shake out. You know, we'll talk to Donovan Bennett about this coming up a little bit. But I have questions about the fit between Russell Westbrook and the Lakers. So I think if you're the Suns, I mean, you just made the NBA finals. You were two wins away from taking home the championship why not run it back right I think you'd be doing yourself a disservice if you didn't and if that's what it takes is you know giving Chris Paul a four-year deal even if you're really only focused on you know next year and the one after that I think that's what you have to do and I mean just to the point of Chris Paul's career earnings man being an NBA player it's good work if you can get it that's for sure oh, if you could find your seriously? way to the NBA it is good good work
3: yeah, I heard um, Helford and Brough on the morning show on 650 say today, it's like, if you have sons and want them to play a sport and expect them to make some money, go to the NBA, because it's yeah. ridiculous right now. I'm going <laughs> to run down some of the numbers uh, before we get to what they're saying. It is, like, it, it's just stupid. It's just, I can't even believe that these contracts are handed out. It's like, I said it earlier, Shea Gilgis-Alexander, five years, $128 million, I believe, $127 million. $172 she- million. Sorry, 172 yes. Jimmy Butler, yeah. 184 over four years for his extension. Kelly Olenek, who we're going to try, I think, to get on the show. Three-year deal, $37 million. I mean, it's not as lot as what I'm saying to these other guys, but still, that's a very significant payday for someone who is, yes, coming off a career year, but is more seen as a role player. So a role player gets $37 million over three years. Jarrett Allen, five years, $100 million. Lonzo Ball, I mean, yeah, second overall pick. At one point in his career, bounced around to a couple of teams. Four years, $85 billion. Like, come on. My
2: favorite, I think, stat is Tim Hardaway Jr. You know, nice player, role player. Role player on a good team, but, you know, decent player. But he has now signed in his career two separate four-year, over $70 million (laughs) contracts. He signed two of them in his career. He's Tim Hardaway Jr.
3: Like you said, good work if you could get it. Oh, my goodness. I would like, you know... Like, I'd take just $1 million of that at this point in my life. I'm just like, yeah. that would be amazing yeah, just that. to have that. All I want to do in my life, Jamie, right now is win that $1 million cash prize off the Lotto Max. It's all I want to do. <laughs> it's
0: well, probably I not wish a very, very lot, good Gary. thing.
3: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's get to what they're saying. What they're saying. Simone Biles. Jamie, we haven't talked about her on this show, but her story is worldwide obviously um she stepped away from most competitions because of mental health reasons she had the twisties and it's really brought a spotlight onto mental health and athletes and she's you know wanted to say like this is this is more than just what you see me on the gymnastics court apparatus whatever you want to call it it's more than just that i am more than just that and she spoke out on the importance of speaking out about mental health and be able to compete in one final event
2: Well, to bring the topic of mental health, I think it should be talked about a lot more, especially with athletes, because I know some of us are going through the same things, and we're always told to push through it, but we're all a little bit older now, and we could kind of speak for ourselves, but at the end of the day, we're not just entertainment, we're humans, and there are things going on behind the scenes that we're also trying to juggle with as well, on top of sports, Um, so yeah. Well, I honestly wasn't even expecting to medal on beam. I just was trying to go out there and hit a good beam set and compete one more time at this Olympic Games because I qualified for all five for all five finals, uh, but then I pulled out. So it just, it sucked, but I was excited to be in the stands and cheering for all of Team USA.
3: So she won bronze today on the balance beam. Her one event that she competed in, she did say leading up to all the events prior to her pulling out of them that she was talking with a sports psychologist and they were kind of going over how her mental health was and if she could compete. And they just de- determined that it was good enough to do the ba- or it was in the right place. Sorry, not good enough in the right place to compete in balance beam. So she gets a seventh medal overall in the Olympics. She's going to go down as one of the most decorated female Olympians of all time, the greatest gymnast of all time and kudos to her. She spoke out about something that in the past, Jamie, it's just always been brushed aside. It's like, okay, you're an athlete. You should be able to go do it. No, sometimes you just can't.
2: And it's it's so it's remarkable to say this because, you know, Simone Biles as you just listed off there has had such an incredible career and, and her achievements are are many. But mm-hmm. in a way, I almost feel like this bronze on the balance beam for her is near the top of the list just mm-hmm. given what she's experienced at these Olympics and the incredible amount of public scrutiny and pressure oh. and backlash and criticism that was leveled against her in the wake of her decision to be able to come back and I know, look, it's bronze and she's won plenty of golds in the past so you you can scoff at it if you want but still to be able to come back after, what it was about a week of of that experience and medal and put in a good performance and as she said, she wasn't even expecting the medal to to be able to come back after everything she's been through just in the last week or so and and finish Mm -hmm. on the podium again, she's got a long, long list of impressive accomplishments but that one is near the top for me
3: one of the things that I was super, I love seeing too, she was so excited when her teammates were winning in the in the stands, cheering them on. And I just think that speaks to her. And I just want to, like, I think the fact too, like she spoke out about this and I know how important these Olympics were and she felt going into 2020, like that was, she had peaked at the right time. And then for her age, like she's, she's old for a gymnast. She's not going to be competing in Paris. And to push one more year, how much toll that took on her body, obviously physically and mentally. And I think too, like you see, young girls and young boys and you they see her do this but you know what it's okay for them now to see if you're struggling you can talk about it and take a break if you needed to we talked about penny alexia catch who she took about a year and a bit off after the rio games because she had some injuries and some depression and the stress of magnitude of everything just got to her and i think these athletes speaking out show other people and young kids like if you're struggling it's okay you can take that break and you can talk about it
2: yeah, there are options available to you, right? You don't have to just put yourself through through misery because because it's what's expected of you necessarily, right? And and again, I think it's really inspiring to see Simone Biles come back so quickly. Not not that it would have been wrong if she had sat out the rest mm-hmm. of the games. That would have been her decision and that would have been legitimate as well, but I think the quick rebound and and the ability to okay I needed to take that pause but now I've been able to reset and now I'm able I feel comfortable I feel confident enough to get back out there and perform at my best I find that very inspiring
3: I will say to Canadian Canada's Ellie Black she Finished fourth in this event. She had to pull out of the all-around, Jamie, because she had an ankle injury that she suffered in training. So for her to get back on, she was in tears after, but it was more tears of um, just happiness that she was able to compete at these Olympics. Okay, that was a very short what they're saying. We'll try and get some other clips on later on the show. But coming up next, we're going to talk more about that Canadian women's soccer win, that impressive win over the United States. They're playing for gold later on this week. Sandra Pristina will join us next. You're listening to Rintoul and Surim on the Sportsnet Radio Network.
2: Now back to Rintoul and Sermon.
3: This is Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd in for Scott Rintoul. That was Bev Priestman, skipper for Team Canada, Canada's women's soccer team that is off to the gold medal game. She's been at the helm since taking over in October of 2020. Jamie, we saw a lot of success for Team Canada under John Herdman. He's had some success now with the men's program. He decided to move on from the women's to the men's. There was a slight someone else in between and then it's Bev yep. Priestman I think what she has done with this Canadian women's team specifically is the fact that okay there's not a lot from the old regime on this team there's not but it, the ones that they have there are very much leaders it's Christine Sinclair Desiree Scott to name a few but she's instilled with these young players going out like why not you why can you not compete with this uh, with this uh American team or the best in the world? We've seen them play England very well. Uh they've played Sweden very tough in the past. It's it's kind of like she changed a mindset of this Canadian team.
2: Well, I I really like that clip, right? Because we always think of the coach's job from a tactical perspective, from an X's and O's perspective. And Bev Priestman has them playing well in that respect as well, right? We talked about their, you know, their defensive game plan and how well they've been able to execute it. So She has that covered, but it is interesting specifically in a sport where one team is so dominant, right? And one Mm -hmm. team is always the juggernaut, always the team that comes out on top, it seems like. Yeah, it would be difficult to maintain a winning, confident mindset in that environment, right? So the -hmm. fact that she was able, again, to instill that belief, get that buy-in from the Canadian team is extremely impressive. And, you know, for as successful as John Herdman was with the Canadian Mm -hmm. women's team, he never beat the Americans, right? No, he <laughs> so didn't. So Beth Priestman has already accomplished that, and she's already taken them to uh, this, the the Olympic final to play for a chance to play for gold. So in a short time, a relatively short time that she's been on the job, she has made some. She's hit some major milestones that this team really hadn't hit before.
3: I love the mantra or their motto going into this tournament. I love the fact that she said, improve the color. No, no, we're not going back to win bronze. We feel that we're better than that, and we want to improve it to silver or gold, which is what they're going to do Friday in Tokyo, Thursday here in Canada. We're joined now by Sandra Priscina, afternoon sports anchor on 660 News in Calgary. Sandra, good morning. How are you? Thanks for joining us.
4: My pleasure, guys. Thank you so much for having me. I hope you guys are doing well.
3: We are. Thank you. Did you, okay, the first question is, did you stay up to watch the game or did you PVR it?
4: No, I, of course I watched, there's no question. <laughs> oh my goodness, Canada, USA. I would get up at any time of night to watch that. <laughs>
3: Well, you're a better fan than Jamie and I, or we PBR didn't watch it the next morning. <laughs> but it, was still, it was still phenomenal to watch the next day. So Canada gets that 1-0 victory over the U.S. in the semifinals at the Olympics. I mean, historic win for Canada in so many ways. We know the last time when they beat them was like 20 years ago. They've only beat them four times in 60-some-odd um, competitions. And what went through your mind, though, when you did watch Canada win this game?
4: Well, finally is probably the word that I would use. I don't think I would so much use redemption just because so many of the players have changed since 2012 compared to now, but just finally, and and I think it's a weight lifted off the shoulder and we can get away from just that storyline of when will Canada finally beat the USA and to do it on a stage like this under so much pressure, knowing that the Americans are recent world cup champions and Listen, they're the Americans, they're the best in the world. So finally, I always like to say, get off the schneid. That's exactly what the Canadians did here. And I'm so happy Christine Sinclair was able to do it. This is probably a huge weight lifted off her shoulders as well.
3: Yeah, before we get into a little bit of the tactics of the match, I just, since you mentioned Christine Sinclair, seeing her face... Running onto the pitch after they won, because of course she would substitute it off and kind of lying there in the disbelief and then the excitement, the te- like everything that went through it. Like, just for her to get this at this age and finally get that next step, like it just, it's just the culmination because I'm not sure how much longer we're, we're going to have of Christine Sinclair.
4: Yeah, I agree with you there. I think professionally she'll continue to play, but she's a very unselfish. We know she's an unselfish player, unselfish person. And I think that she's setting up this program for success because what I think we saw was her incredible leadership over the past two decades since she debuted in 2000. But what we saw was her personified on the field when we got the, sorry to say we, but when Canada got the pk and she took the ball and she handed it to jesse fleming that was almost a a proverbial passing of the torch if you will and i don't know how to better describe it but that was her knowing that you know what pks have jinxed her a little bit in the past we saw what happened with brazil she decided she was going to let someone else take that weight on their shoulders knowing that they could do it and jesse fleming She made no mistake. What an incredible PK. And obviously, that's all Canada needed.
2: And you mentioned, Sandra, that moment, which really stood out to me as an example of Christine Sinclair's leadership as well. And, you know, whenever we start talking about Christine Sinclair, obviously, there's the tendency to focus on the incredible individual goal scoring record and the incredible individual success she's had over the years. But... You know, that moment, as you say, kind of the proverbial passing of a torch and, and what it symbolizes about her leadership and the culture that she has helped build on the Canadians' women, women's team, is that going to end up being an even greater legacy for Christine Sinclair than, for example, the international goal-scoring record?
4: Oh, 100%, Jamie. And I look back to 2012, and a lot of the players on this team now, they were just kids. So at that time, when they saw her score three against Hope Solo versus the Americans, finally win the bronze, she started setting that path then. And now you've got these players playing with her, Jesse Fleming, Deanne Rose, Julia Grosso. I mean, I could go on. So she set that foundation. And now she's leaving this incredible path, incredible path of leadership. Even Even if players aren't playing 90 minutes and they're only coming on as substitutes, They've learnt from the best that Canada has ever seen. So I think we're very, very lucky. And the legacy she has left, not only as a soccer player, but I think just as a sports person in this country is absolutely incredible. And we saw support from Canada Basketball and Hockey Canada and all of the organizations in Canada seeing what this team is doing. And that's all on the shoulders of what Christine has done.
2: And speaking about the culture and the mindset of this team, just before you joined us, we played a clip from their coach, Bev Priestman, talking about how they needed a a different mindset, a different attitude, specifically when it comes to facing the Americans. And, you know, Bev Priestman, she's been on the job for less than a year at this point, but apparently she has been able to change that mindset, right? And she had them ready mentally to go on and take take on the heavily favored Americans. What has made Bev Priestman so successful in such a short time as the coach of this team?
4: Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think it does go back to the time that she spent with John Herdman and she was able to see what this team did in Rio. So she was part of their group then. She went over to the UK, honed her craft a little bit more, came back to Canada. And what really stood out to me talking to her when we had the She Believes Cup back in January was she said she wanted her players to be brave. And I've never really heard a coach say that. She wants them to put themselves on the line, not be scared to make a mistake, not be scared to to block a shot, put their head on the line. And to me, the greatest example of that right now is Vanessa Gilles. She's probably the most underrated player on this team. And what she has been able to do, come in and do defensively with fewer than 10 caps to her name. She was one of those late bloomers. She epitomizes everything to me that Bev Priestman wants from her team is being brave and doing whatever it takes to win and being okay if you make a mistake. And it was interesting. I look back on that game versus Brazil and the PKs and the fact that Christine, yes, she missed it, but nobody panicked. It was incredible how the mind change, the the shift, there was none. They just concentrated on the task at hand. They got it done, booked a spot against the Americans, got it done again.
3: We're speaking with Sandra Pristina, Afternoon Sports anchor on six 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 sixteen News in Calgary. Sorry about that. When you talk about Vanessa Giles, and I want to specifically talk about that back line, because Kadisha Buchanan, Giles, Athlete Lawrence, and Alicia Chapman, like, they were able to control the Americans in the first half. And then when the Americans were pushing in the second half, especially when they made that substitution up front with their three forwards, they swapped three in three out. Uh, They had a lot of energy when they did that, but they were still able to control them to a point. How key has that back four been for this Canadian team?
4: Yeah. Isn't that the truth? Uh, Incredible how the Americans can sum on Carly Lloyd, (laughs) Megan Rapinoe and Kristen Press in just one substitution. And a part of me was like, oh, boy, I definitely thought that to myself. But then you mentioned it right there. That back line has been solid throughout the tournament. And you also have to throw, let's throw Shalina Zadorski in the mix because she did play those couple of games early on. Mm-hmm. And then Steph, Steph LeBay, how good has she been? She They always let her see the ball, and that's what really stood out to me. Yeah, the Americans were pressing a little bit more in that second half after that sub but Steph was seeing all the balls. So, I mean, when your goalie is truly the best line of defense that you have, she's been awesome. So the combination of the back line and her have been fantastic.
3: This Swedish team that they're going to play in the gold medal game, I have to admit, I haven't watched a ton of them, but just by looking at how they're beating teams, I mean, basically they outscored their opponents 13-3 to in the knockout phase. They beat the Americans very handily. Um, or Sorry, 13-3 to overall, but... Does Canada have to continue to play the way they did against the Americans to beat the Swedish squad?
4: Yeah, I think so. To me, the talk of the Canadian team has been depth. Because if we look back at previous iterations of Canadian Olympic teams 2012-2016, I thought the success of the team really stood on the shoulders of Christine Sinclair and Melissa Tancredi and whoever was in goal. But in this edition of the Olympics, we've really seen Canada adapt to a depth Mantra and mentality. So no matter whoever is on the pitch, they're going to get it done. So I think we'll see that versus Sweden. Sweden is a fascinating team. They've had this really inter- interesting projection over the past few years, and they continue to get better and better. And Blackstenius, I think, is one of the the best players in the world. They've got excellent goalkeeping, but I also think Canada will have a little chip on its shoulder if you think back to the Women's World Cup and the round of sixteen game where Canada lost to Sweden, I think they'd like a little bit of redemption for that. So I think Bev Priestman's message is don't change the game plan, stick to what you know, play solid defensively, and then catch them on the counter.
2: Sander, whenever a uh, traditionally dominant team loses in a sport like this in a high profile fashion, there's always the debate of, okay, is this a blip or is this a sign that maybe the rest of the pack, the rest of the field is catching up a little bit? When we look at this United States team, you know, is this a down year for them or, or maybe just a less dominant version of the squad? Or is it a case where the rest of the world, the level of play has really improved at a rapid rate and that gap has gotten much smaller now?
4: I actually think it's a combination of both and I'm actually surprised that they brought so many of their veterans over to the Olympics. When I saw the roster, I was really surprised. I thought they might go with some of their young guns and they decided to leave them home. So I think after the Olympics, we're going to see a little turn of the tide. Is Carly Lloyd at 40 years old going to stick around? I don't know. I mean, she is a beast. She's she's kind of a freak of nature with her fitness and those kinds of things like that, but I I don't know. Do you do you still stick with her? You have to sort of leave the past in the past. And then to counter that, yeah, absolutely. The world has just the parity in the women's game is incredible right now. I actually think that this tournament at the Olympics should be expanded to see more teams just because there's there's so many good teams and at the end of the day these leagues they're just expanding all over the world. I know we know about the NWFL here in North America. But if you look at what's happening with the Premier League, we have so many Canadians playing in France. Spain is continuing to advance, Germany, Italy. So these teams are getting better and better because people are finally, finally investing in the women's game, and we're seeing the dividends of it now.
2: Well, and, and, you know, to your point about potentially expanding the tournament, I I do wonder look, obviously, if the Canadian women are able to capture gold, that's going to be a massive story and a massive accomplishment here in Canada. But, I wonder if that will even have some worldwide implications, right, if it will make the tournament organizers for the next game stand up and say, hey, look, this isn't just, you know, the United States and maybe Sweden and England and and Brazil anymore. This is truly a sport with an incredible depth of field, and we do need to look at expanding it. I I wonder if a Canadian win can really show that, hey, the, the competition is excellent across the globe at this point.
4: Yeah, I'm with you on that one. And I also look at Australia. They're playing for the bronze medal match versus the Americans. I think that they could beat the Americans and and take a third-place finish, which would be amazing for the Australian program. And having someone like Sam Kerr, one of the best players in the world. So absolutely, Canada, Sweden, regardless of who wins, it'll be a first time for that particular country winning gold. So
3: if that doesn't force people to take notice, I don't really know what will, to be honest. Sandra Priscina, we're talking for a little bit longer now Afternoon Sports Inger on 660 News in Calgary Sandra where do you how do you see this American squad because it does seem like it's going to be a bit of changing of the guard you mentioned but this team has a unless you're Americans you kind of love to hate them and love to see them lose and obviously we love to see Canada beat them on the pitch but off the pitch they've used their platform um, to use their voice and speak out on certain matters like how do you view this team
4: they're a little polarizing to me for those two reasons that you mentioned. On the pitch, they've frustrated the heck out of <laughs> Canadians, Canadian fans <laughs> for 20-plus for years. And I, I will be honest, I was a little disappointed at Megan Rapinoe's comments after the game where she didn't even really credit the Canadians for their performance. She said, well, I've never lost to Canada before. So I'm not crazy about that, but then I look at, like you mentioned, what she does away from the pitch and just the heart and the fact that they're willing to put themselves on the line, put their careers on the line to do what's better for girls who are just wanting to play sports, girls in general, equality. I have to give them kudos because as the top-ranked team in the world, you have a platform and they use it. And it's not always, gosh, I looked at some of those comments after they had lost versus Canada, and it was just the things people were saying. The vitriol was, to me, incomprehensible. I, I can't imagine their if they looked at their mentions on Twitter and the things that they were, you know, people were saying saying about them to me that's kind of heartbreaking to be honest with you so I give them respect for what they do off the pitch hundred percent don't care for them too much on the pitch (laughs) but I think uh, I think that's a given and uh, we're really lucky that we have such a such a a great rivalry in North America and I'm just Mm -hmm. glad Canada came out on top to be to be frank
3: (laughs) if this Canadian team wins gold would this be one of the most would this be the most successful achievement from a Canadian either woman or women's team? And I say that I know the US or sorry the Canadians women's hockey team won four straight gold medals and we know the success of them, but that's hockey and that's that's our sport. So how do you see Canada ranking if they were to win gold? Oh, that is a tough
4: one. Oh my goodness. Okay. And <sighs> the reason I'm I'm going to say and I, I love both sports and I cover both sports and I will say, I will profess my, you know, my comment with 2002 was probably one of the best games I've ever seen of any sport in Salt Lake City, the Canada U.S. Final. However, when we look at parity in the game, the parity in women's hockey is is still not there. It's getting there. But I think once we see the Women's World Championship, it's actually here in Calgary later this month, I think you're going to see still a lot of lopsided scores. Whereas when you look at, soccer you don't see that as much so to me this will be the greater victory and i think when you have a singular figure like christine sinclair who has literally been through everything with this team through that heartbreaking disappointment at the world cup in germany so many years ago before john herdman got into the program probably the lowest of the lows that the soccer program has ever seen in this country to be at this point like what a trajectory! For uh-huh. and for the program and for this sport and i can only imagine if we thought hosting the women's world cup was going to inspire a next generation you know without sounding too much kumbaya and all that sort of stuff this will do even more for the sport in this country i have no doubt
3: Sandra, thank you so much for your time this morning. We very much appreciate it. Enjoy the gold medal game. It's 7 o'clock Pacific time on Thursday, 8 o'clock Mountain Time. We will definitely be cheering for another Top the Podium for the Canadian women.
4: Let's do it, guys. Thank you so much for having me. All the best.